epitch.org. Entrepreneurs telling their stories, giving us a better understanding of the entrepreneurial experience. Here we go, Mike's E-Pitch Fast 30. What is the name of your current business? Huntsville Steamworks. Do you have a website? www.hsvsteamworks.org Age you started this business? I was 60. Did you always want to own your own business? Yeah, ever since my college days. Okay, how do you define success as an entrepreneur? I'd say it's meeting your long-term goals. Did you have to get a loan to get started in business? No. Are you a sole proprietor? It doesn't really apply here since nonprofits don't have owners and we're a nonprofit. Okay. How many employees do you have? 20. Do you use the services of a professional accounting or attorney? Yes, we have an accountant. What is unique about your business? We're the only education makerspace in the area. Okay. Most important thing to consider before starting a business? Can it be self-sustaining? Is it a viable business model? Okay, what is the one thing that has made this business a success? I think it's the quality of our services. Three words to describe your business. Education, personal growth, and fun. All right, favorite way to market your business? That'd be word of mouth. Favorite social media app? Instagram. What city were you born in? Miami Beach, Florida. Introvert or extrovert? I'm an introvert faking it as an extrovert. Late or early? Late. Multitask or single task? Single task. Plan or spontaneous? Well, both. Mostly plan, but I can still shoot from the hip when necessary. All right. Describe yourself with three words. Say smart, funny, and humble. One thing most people don't know about you. That I'm an introvert faking it as an extrovert. <laughs> Would you rather text, talk, or email when communicating with others? Talk. Favorite entrepreneur? Dave Ramsey. What website do you visit most often? Google News. Favorite advice your parents gave to you? Be honest. What is one piece of advice that you would give to others starting a business? Have integrity and perseverance. Favorite part about being an entrepreneur? Greater freedom to make decisions. What do you want to be remembered for? Helping people. Do you love what you do? Very much. All right, there you have it. Mike's E-Pitch Fast 30. Let's discuss Mike and his entrepreneurial experiences with Huntsville Steamworks. Mike, you have an interesting story. You started a library automation service company back in 1979 named Searcy. Before we start talking about your current business, can you tell us a little bit how you got started in that company and some details about the success of Searcy and what exactly is library automation? Sure. I'd have to say it all started at Georgia Tech. I went there in 1974 to be a mechanical engineer. That's what I thought I wanted to be and, and uh, I've had a love of all things mechanical and that I still uh, have to this day so I figured that was going to be my career. Fortunately or unfortunately I discovered computers and spent all my time at the computer center which you had to go to one building to use the computers back in those days we didn't have PCs. Uh, 
hard to believe kids right. I know. Spent all my time there because I was just hooked on computers. I was fascinated by them and wanted to learn as much about them as I could. And unfortunately, that was the detriment of my uh, other grades <laughs> there. And so eventually I decided I needed to drop out and make some money. So I got a job working as a programmer for the state of Georgia at the Georgia Tech Library, Price Gilbert Memorial Library. Okay. Uh, and that's where I met my future business partners, Jim and Jackie Young. Jim is, was the systems analyst at the Georgia Tech Library, my, my boss uh, for that job. And uh, Jackie was his wife. She was getting her master's in linguistics at Georgia State University. So became friends with them as well as colleagues. And they decided to take a job in, with M&S Computing, now known as Intergraph. And they're both from Europe. Jackie's from England. Jim was born in Germany. And they were going to be, they were promised to, to set up a European office or to work in a European office over there. And they were just going to come to Huntsville to get familiarized with the company and the products. And that fell through. But they both liked Huntsville so much, they decided to stay here. And Jim went to work uh, full time for M&S Computing. Well, I didn't like my new boss at the library, the new systems analyst there. And so I asked if Jim could get me a job. And he said, yeah, sure, And as a programmer. And at the time, I was making $9,500 a year, that princely sum. And I shot for the moon and asked if he'd get me $14,000. And he said he thought he could. This okay. is in 70, it would have been 79. Okay. okay. So we did, and I came to Huntsville, and I think it was snowing the day. First drove into town, first time I've been to Huntsville. Oh, wow. And settled in and started to work at M&S Computing. Loved it a lot. Had a lot of fun, did a lot of cool projects. Um, we did the, Jim in our group did the biggest contract they'd ever had for U.S. Steel. It was a million dollar contract that, and we were successful at that. So we worked overnight one time and got a reputation as being the, the tough guys because we pulled one all-nighter, so. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, so we saw people all around us leaving M&S Computing and starting their own companies. And of course, with the you know hubris of youth, I was all of uh, what, 23 at the time, thought that we were smarter than them could do could do it too they did that so we quit M&S and started our own software software company that we called Circe S-I-R-S-I and it actually they didn't advertise this but it stood for Specialist in Reliable Software Incorporated okay well and I was going to ask you what it stood for because yeah. I knew there had to it be didn't, it something. wasn't really an acronym it was just a name but but that was the genesis of the name was that, that those words okay you started this after you left that company. You didn't go work for another company. No. You all decided to open up this company. That's right. So do you have anything lined up at the new company or are you taking a year or however long it takes to get it up and running? Well, we actually didn't have any relationship to the library business other than our experience at the time of the company. And we just kicked around different ideas like writing a word processing program. You know, we could have been word perfect if we'd done that, I think. Not Word, Microsoft Word, but Word Perfect, uh, which has fallen by the wayside in the meantime. But we had uh, one of our, we had a fourth partner, uh, besides the three of us, and she had contacts with the company she used to work for, and they needed some software written. Okay. And uh, we wrote some software for them, and just kind of kept body and soul together. We were all living, you know, pretty cheap. Didn't need a lot of money, so we did that. And then we we knew the opportunity came up that Georgia Tech wanted a library system, and so. Jim had done a survey of library systems while he was a systems analyst there and found commercially available systems at the time to be 
woefully inadequate to what Georgia Tech needed. So we told Georgia Tech we'd write them whatever kind of system they needed. And we proceeded to do so, and we got progress payments on it so we could you know, keep the doors open, lights on while we did this work okay. for them. And we just did it via 1,200 baud modems dialing into the system back at Georgia Tech. And we'd, we'd go there. In fact, I went back there to go to school. I, I dropped out of school to go work at M&S Computing. Well, first I worked at the library and then M&S Computing. And so I was still trying to finish my degree, so I went back for a couple quarters off and on and did some work at Georgia Tech on the system on our, the system we were creating while I was there, but eventually I just moved back to Huntsville full-time. I was I think I became a junior at Georgia Tech and left without benefit of a degree. Okay. So. You moved to Huntsville, and did you have any idea that this is where this would lead to? Had you thought about, you know, I'm going to work for this company, but someday maybe I just want to have my own company? Yeah, not so much. I mean, I, I like I said uh, in the the Fast 30, I, I'd wanted to have my own company since college days. In fact, like I said, we talked about word processor. I thought maybe the path to success was to write a word processor uh, on there. But I didn't have that in mind when I moved to Huntsville. We just kind of got the idea seeing the other people doing it. And Huntsville such an entrepreneurial town. Even in those days, uh, there was that spirit of starting your own business uh, all around. So. We got caught up in that, started up Cersei. Was there a time when you thought, you know, this is just too big? There are so many problems that can happen on day to day with, you know, trying to get new business or contracts. Did you have a lot of those days in the beginning? Oh, only a few hundred. <laughs> only a few hundred. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's pretty unusual for partnerships. Our, our fourth partner eventually decided that. that being an entrepreneur wasn't for her, so she dropped out, went back to day jobs. It's kind of unusual for partnerships of three people to last as long as ours did. My hero Dave Ramsey says the only ship that won't sail is a partnership. So he's not in favor of, uh, of people partnering up. Okay. Uh, because, you know, so many things can happen. There's too many moving parts. But we got along well. We always, you know, came to consensus. We don't always start off agreeing, but we came to consensus. But the best part of having three people is if one or two of us would be down and want to quit, the other one would talk us out of it. Okay. So, well, that, that was good, right? That was good. It was great. And, and so that's how we managed to last through the, the many doubts and episodes of despair or whatever, discouragement that we went through there. So that, that goes with that perseverance that I was talking about as a vital trait for entrepreneurs. Did you each bring something different to the table? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I was the programmer and hardware guy. Jim was our brilliant system designer, and Jackie was the, the manager. She knew how to, to run things and organize things. Okay. So that was kind of the combination we needed. The one thing we didn't have was a marketing person, the, the hype person. Maybe because we're tech people, we never got along well with the marketing people. I don't know if we ever <laughs> found, found a marketing person we, we, we liked, <laughs> but it never seemed to us like they were earning their money. But. No offense to the marketing people out there. You guys are vital to the existence of any business, but we didn't see it that way at the time. Right, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, every penny, uh, you had to yeah, make sure right. that it was going to stretch as far as it could go. Exactly. So how did you get new business at that time? Yeah, so we signed the deal with Georgia Tech. We signed it, I don't remember if they thought of this or we thought of this, but it ended up that, that the license that we granted Georgia Tech was actually to the University System of Georgia. So any school in the university system could get our software for free. And, of course, selling them the hardware, we made a little bit of money on that, not much. But the biggest uh, moneymaker in that case was our services. So we'd have to 
convert their data from their old system to make it run on our new system. We'd have to train them. We'd have to provide support. There was an annual support fee. So that's how we can make money by giving software away, kind of like the, the, the freeware model that some people do. Who would show them this with the three of you? Did you have to end yeah. up hiring someone over in Georgia? Or did you go over yeah. there a lot? We did it. We did it some. We we visits. You know, it, it. Like I said before, word of mouth it got around the university system. Libraries are a pretty tight knit group in general, especially within one state within a university system. Word gets around fast. Uh, the libraries know what everybody else is doing with their library system, especially in those days when library automation was just coming into its its heyday. When did you know that you finally? had made it, that you knew that this was going to be a business that was going to continue for the long haul? Yeah, I, I'm not sure what year it was. It was a few years down the road, but we had our first million dollar revenue year. Okay. Okay. And I remember how that felt, even if I don't remember the exact year. And it also just imparted a kind of momentum that it's kind of hard to put a scientific definition on it, but it, once we hit that milestone, it just seemed like it was much easier to keep going and keep growing there. So that was that was a memorable point in the history where we were uh, much more optimistic about the future. Were a lot of your contracts after that typically at universities? Well, one of the decisions we made early on that turned out to be a great decision was that we wanted the system to be to work with all kinds of libraries. So besides university libraries, there are also public libraries, and the library on the corner that people are familiar with. There are uh, K through 12 libraries, the school library. There are special libraries like government libraries or law libraries or research libraries on there. And we worked very hard to make the system broad enough to cover all those sectors of the library automation market, whereas most of our competitors just specialized in one or two of those markets. So if one market was down, then we could go sell in another market until that market recovered. Were the competitors, you know, Huntsville at that time was a pretty small place. Mm -hmm. Were these competitors in larger cities like Atlanta or San Francisco? Yeah, somewhat. We had some international competitors as well, but uh, let's see, you had a competitor out of Chicago, one out of St. Louis, bigger cities like that. And, and a funny story, we got wind that Huntsville Madison County Public Library was going out for bid for a new system. So, of course, we're all excited. Here's one in our own town. And we bid on it, and we thought we put a good bid forward. But I think it was a combination of being too new and too small a company without a big installed base, and also a profit being without honor in his own country. You know, that, that is kind of like if, well, if it came from Huntsville, it can't be as good as these big city library systems. They went with one of our competitors, which ironically we later bought. So oh. we got their system by buying the, the people that put their system in there. It's like that. And worked with them after that, and they were very happy. And we were very happy to have them as customers in right. our town, of course. As you're kind of going through that with Huntsville not being as well known, you know, it's, it's still kind of an unknown place it to is. a majority of people. Yes. So I could see where a larger city or someone who has done something could potentially get in the way. Yeah, yeah, I think that was true. That was part of our part of our problem. But we just pretty much kept our head down and tried to keep improving the system. We were a, a pretty lean operation. We didn't go out and you know lease company cars for everybody or you know have fancy offices or fancy office equipment. We bought used office furniture even for our offices uh, on there because that was our philosophy was to to keep our overhead down. In fact, later on when we 
were looking for venture capital and they would look at our books, they're going like, that, that's crazy. You know, guys don't have any country club memberships for the, for the <laughs> management or leased cars or anything like that. Then no, we don't believe in that. <laughs> yeah, right. So. Well, uh, it would be interesting to know what that bid was from that other company that originally got the public library because possibly it could have been more but they were thinking maybe the job couldn't be done for a lower That's, competitive that price. That wouldn't surprise me in the least, and I might have known. We might have known at the time, but I don't remember. But that wouldn't be a surprising outcome. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. What is it like for a company to merge with another company? You know, is it something that, that you talk about for a couple of years, and lawyers get involved, oh, and you're trying time. to decide on what they do, what you do, like right. what what are they going to bring to the table, merging these companies together. Yeah. What, you know, I would imagine there's a lot of problems, if you will, trying to get that Absolutely. all settled, and then also you have a new management team kind of coming together. That's right. That you have to decide on things. What What is that like? Well, we actually did it twice. We bought two of our competitors. Um, two of the large competitors or some small companies rolled in there too. One of the reasons why we were looking for venture capital wasn't just for the money. We actually had you know, a good bit of money at the time, but we wanted their expertise for things like mergers and acquisitions because they had the, the experts, the M&A experts okay. um, uh, that they could tap and the banks to do the financing and, and the lawyers, the, the New York silk stocking lawyers um, to to write up all the little papers with all the fine print to make sure everything goes smoothly. But as far as actual mechanics of the, the merger, getting it done, it is very hard. We had worked very hard to cultivate a certain culture in our company, and then we're bringing in all these people from a different culture. And we definitely were trying to preserve our culture. We didn't really want to change over to their culture. We thought ours was the, the better culture. And we were the one doing the acquisition, so we could make that happen pretty much. And people would leave, and you know, and there was a lot of discussion over which software to to go forward with because we had two separate, you know, formerly competing software systems, pretty much incompatible. We had their existing base that we had to support, so we couldn't just throw their software out. We had to uh, keep on coming out with new releases for those customers and providing them tech support. But our goal was to eventually convert them over to our system. And some of them didn't want to do that. Some of them loved their old system. It's what they're used to. So they're kind of dragged kicking and screaming into that when they could. We let them hang on as long as possible. So it was a lot of work and uh, a lot of time and, and so forth. But, you know, we bought them as much to eliminate the competition as to get the, get the additional business and expand the customer base. And the other thing is that the, we became a much more interesting company to potential buyers because of the recurring revenue. That maintenance I was telling you about was about 10% of the purchase price of the system, which could millions of dollars. And so, and we had a you know 99% retention rate on our customers. They would stay, stay with us, uh, with our system, and stay signed up for our maintenance, which included updates. And so, the cash just keeps rolling in every month from these payments on there, whether we sell a new system or not. So that makes you a very attractive company and increases your valuation. Once you start with a company that are doing these updates for you, it's very hard to change to something else. It is, it is. So you kind of have people tied for a long time That's right. with that, and especially if you have other companies now that you've acquired yes. uh, with, with not much competition there. Yes. With having the old systems too, like when you bought out the other company and right. it wasn't compatible, 
there's only so much money that you can put into their system. Like you said, eventually you do kind of have to integrate the two right. because it's, it's of no value. Right. It's not for growth. That's right. And we would, we would modify our system to incorporate features that the old system had that we didn't have so they wouldn't be losing any functionality. And we would sweeten the pots by giving them deep discounts in the software so we could sign them up for the maintenance okay. and get that recurring revenue again, that sweet, sweet you know, okay. recurring revenue. Uh, which people probably really liked. Which right? they liked, yes. And, and you know, the, like I said, the maintenance uh, included free software updates so they get all the newest features uh, as long as they were signed up for the signed up for the maintenance on there. Um, so, and we're always trying to improve the system and listen to the customers and what they're needing. And the, the world of uh, technology is evolving, so we're incorporating new technology. I mean, the big jump was we, we uh, connected our system to the internet because when we started out, the internet wasn't very common. Libraries, a lot of libraries didn't have internet. We had to connect libraries together with leased lines and statistical multiplexers over serial ports for the tech nerds uh, listening. And so. how do you learn to do all that because yeah. sometimes you know education isn't where the technology is I mean is it yeah. hands-on learning yeah it's pretty much OJT on the job training for us we just had to study up and research and you know do some experiments and figure out how to make it work okay your company sold for 260 million dollars something like that yeah and I'd like to, to point that. out that, that that my ownership which started out at a third, a little less than a third of the company, by that time was a single-digit percentages. So, I, unfortunately, I wish I'd gotten a third of $260 million, but uh, nowhere near that. So, When you look at that, that is a huge success. We're very proud of the, the valuation of the company at the time. And then there was, you know, to, to further, uh, you know, bring that figure back to reality. There was some debt in the company from the acquisitions, and of course that comes out before the payout is made to the equity holders. But no, I mean, that we, we were very pleased that they thought that our company was worth that much money. You know, right. The little old Huntsville company that we started, just, you know, just some regular folks. Yeah, well, I think it, it's pretty amazing. And of course that puts Huntsville on a national spotlight when a company sells for that much money. It does. And it wasn't, I don't think it was known we had NDAs at the time and stuff that, so I don't think that was a generally known figure even in the Niagara automation journalism sector. So we were happy with it. And this really, you know, you have something that really can't go obsolete. It's always gonna be, need to be updated. I mean, you took something that was always going to have to be changing and evolving and it will be a forever thing. I mean, people are always going to have to well, have this information. Funny story about that, <laughs> okay? So, you know, they say the, the way to make money in the stock market is to buy low and sell high, okay? <laughs> yes. Well, we sold out at kind of peak Cersei, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay? And after that, some things happened that, you know, put the library automation market into a decline. Things like, uh, well, first of all, the internet and you know, causing fewer people to go to the library, so the library needs to have fewer users so they don't get as much funding. Second, the rise of open source software in library automation, that some people were writing software and giving it away on there, including the source code. And of course that sounds like a great deal of libraries, but like I said before, the real money in library automation was the services side of it, the support side. There are people that sell support for open source software, for the freeware on there, but you know, if, if you're if you're the ones that wrote the software, you're probably the best ones equipped to, to support it. 
like that. And and you know the software. I've looked at some of the open source software, and it's just not the same quality as the software that we had okay. uh, on there. But apparently, it works well enough because it's very popular with libraries, and and they're not software geeks like me, so they're not concerned about you know how they indented their code when they wrote it. They just want to know whether it's going to work for the library or not. Well, and you know, I think when you probably walk into a place, you don't think, oh, they're using what we developed. Yeah back in the early 80s right you know how, how it's evolved but, right you know it's one of those unknowns like you don't even think about it as a consumer yeah what all goes into it and who all has developed these things to make our lives better well that was that was something that was pretty gratifying after so we retired from day-to-day -day operations in 2002 my partners and I but we still had our, our equity stake and we still were on the board of directors to protect our protect our, our stake in the company and we had a, a hired a CEO to run the company. And when we did that acquisition of Dynix after that, which was couched as a merger, but was actually an acquisition, the company had to decide, well, I'm sorry, and then, and then when we sold the company, the company had to decide which software they're gonna use, whether they're gonna use Dynix's software, they had a brand new shiny system they had just written, or our clunky old 80s technology system. And they evaluated the technologies and chose our clunky old 80s technology system okay. on there. Interesting. So, yeah, so that was kind of gratifying that um, so they it was validated our that work. Written that well. It was it was good. Great. It was good. It's very uh, easily adapted. It's very modular and easy to change around, change up front ends and back ends. If I'm not mistaken, this company was sold in 2006. So I think that's right. Something like that. Well, and something interesting happened around that time. Yeah. Was, you know, cell phones became a necessity. Yeah. Wasn't it 2007 they introduced the iPhone? Yes. Yeah. And right before that, people were still, they had the flip phones, but they were, people had them all over the place. Yes, right. So. And it became even more of a necessity when they came out with smartphones, right? Smartphones, and then all the social media networks. Yes. And uh, Wikipedia, you know, the whole Britannica is I know, on right? the web now. So that is interesting how that evolved really right around the time, like you said, it was peak time. That's right. So right. uh, sometimes kind of, life is a gamble. Kind of the beginning of the end. And I'd like to say that we, we did that on purpose, but it was completely accidental. Oh, so. Right. Well, and how could you foresee something that taking off so That's fast right. like no, that? I, would, I wouldn't have foreseen that, even though I you know, try to keep up with technology. I wouldn't have believed that it would be so uh, such a sea change in, in the way information is, is you know, handled. After this company, did you start any other businesses or companies? Nope. I just kicked around for what would be about 14 years, I guess, flying airplanes, and I did some charity work. You know, I worked for the community free clinic, and uh, I did angel flights, flying people for uh, medical uh, needs to visit hospitals and clinics. But you know, pretty much didn't do anything else to just enjoy life. Okay, and uh, I know a little bit later I want to talk more about angel flights. Yes. Uh, just because I know that you really worked a lot with them. And so I want to get some more information on that, sure. too. Your very next venture, then, was actually Huntsville Steamworks. Huntsville Steamworks, that's right. Okay, so let's, let's kind of discuss Huntsville Steamworks, sure. then, if you will. Sure, This is what you're doing now. And how long did it take you to start this company, from the time you started with the concept to opening up? I guess the concept came along in 2016, and we actually did the paperwork to become a real company and a 
registered as a nonprofit in 2016. And then 2017, we got our official 501c3 determination letter from the IRS. So we were a real charity that you know could take tax-deductible contributions. So in 2017 was our, our building year. There was a another company in town, Mindgear Labs, it was a for-profit company that had a little bit of a maker space and, and had an education department. And so I just bought, and, and they were closing down to go up and do something else. So I bought their assets and I hired most of their people, including their education people, and used that as the base to build Huntsville Steamworks upon. Okay, what does STEAM stand for? So STEAM is science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics or STEM plus A for art, okay. I like to say. And it's kind of funny, originally it was just gonna be just gonna be for STEM, and then I saw that STEAM was becoming a thing, and, and we're in Low Mill, which is the largest privately owned art collective in the United States, art facility in the United States, and I thought, well, it'd be great to put art in there, and, and there, are, there, there are lots of link between art and, and mathematics, for example, and, and other um, areas of STEM. So I said, what the heck, put the A in there. And it turned out to be a very serendipitous decision because there are so many, so many linkages and so many of the people that work there have artistic uh, ability and they integrate it so nicely with the technology, everything like that, that it's just, it just worked out great. What services do you offer there? So we're, we, we think of ourselves as an education maker space. So we have traditional classroom type classes. We do those for homeschool students. So for example, if a homeschool parent doesn't have a chemistry lab or biology lab, they can send their kids to us and get, get taught that. Or uh, we do the, the mathematics like high school math, algebra one, algebra two, geometry, trigonometry. We do those, we have the classrooms and teaching aids for all that. We have the curriculum in place. We do a lot of outreach where we go out to schools and do after-school programs or in-school programs with our teachers. They just pack up the equipment, take it out there. For instance, we have 30-some-odd laptops we can take out and deploy at a school to do whatever it is they need the laptops for, for our class. We have workshops and seminars just on all the different STEAM topics on there. We also offer memberships for adults and teenagers to come in and use our equipment, to take classes on how to use the equipment, uh, for example, we have advanced manufacturing technology shop where we have 3D printers and laser cutters. We have a metalworking shop where we have milling machine and a lathe that are computer controlled, CNC. And we have a, a full wood shop with everything you could want, including a computer controlled router that can route four by eight sheets of plywood on the bed there and all the, the hand tools to build cool things. We have a textile shop, we have an aerospace shop, we have a robotics lab, we have an electronic shop with all the oscilloscopes and and power supplies and function generators you could want on there. So those are the kind of things that we offer there for people. Are, are you coming up, it's been a, a year and a half or? It'll be our second second anniversary of our grand opening in uh, this month actually. Oh, so two years this month. Two years okay. this month, right. So I remember one of the things when you first opened was the 3D printer. Yes. And people were really talking about that. Yes. So is, is this 3D printer can you talk a little bit about that? Like, yeah, it's very complicated for me, anyways, because how many different material can you put in yeah. there? How do you have to design it on a computer? Sure, sure. So 
we have a whole design studio that has computers that are powerful enough to run 3D design software. We have different brands of 3D design software. And it just lets you draw it. You know, the simplest one lets you put together cubes and spheres and pyramids and stuff into the shape you want on there. The more sophisticated ones, you can draw curves and everything. But however you need to do it. Or you can download a design off the internet for free. Okay, so you find a design, you make a design or find a design, and you take it and you put it on an SD card <laughs> and you plug it into this little 3D printer that's just sitting on the bench. We have a whole row of them. All right, and the software that takes and does what's called slicing, and it takes your 3D image and it cuts it into horizontal layers. So if you like put it on a side, took a bread knife and cut off slices of it, but they're very thin slices, like you know a few thousands of an inch thick. All right, and if you can imagine, if you had something that would squirt out a thin layer of toothpaste and do each layer one at a time and then just do another layer on top of it. If you had like a cone that was tapering up, each steam layer would be a little bit smaller than the, than the last okay. one, okay? So a hollow cone, you just do a ring, and then you do a slightly smaller ring on top of that, and a smaller ring on top of that, and it's gonna go up, come up to a point, all right? Okay. So you can use that technique to make just about any shape, uh, as long as it'll support itself and not fall over. And you can add little, little pieces to support it uh, on there that you cut off when you're done. And instead of toothpaste, uh, we have fil filament uh, 3D printers that take something that looks like plastic fishing line and they push it through a print head and the print head heats it up and squeezes it out a small nozzle so it comes out more like a thread than a fishing line. Okay. And that's what it squirts on there and it sticks to the heated bed for the first layer and sticks to the last layer for succeeding layers. Wow. There. So it builds it up and it, it hardens as soon as it cools. It's a thermoplastic. There's a little fan on the head to cool it down. Uh, right after it comes out and it's a rather slow process because it has to build up each of these very thin layers over and over again it can only move so fast but it moves in three dimensions and builds up this thing and you just pop it off and there you got it it to me it's one of the most amazing things that you can think up something design it on a computer and make it real life it's like science fiction it's like the you know star trek or something that we can do that now with with these machines I know I read something about NASA being able to have 3D machines in space, yes. and when something happens with a part, yeah. they can send up a design over their link, data link, and print it out. Yeah, I don't know if they have those up in um, up in the uh, International Space Station, but I know that that NASA on the ground has 3D printers that can print things out of metal. They're printing rocket parts on 3D printers, and okay. as I know some engineers that are working with that which is the $100,000 range on the 3D printers instead of the few thousand dollar range like the ones we have. Right. Well, what is your mission for Steamworks? Our official mission statement is to foster creativity and innovation through education and technology. So we wanted to encourage and teach people how to create and come up with new things, and we'll do that by teaching them those things and giving them access to the machines where they can do that. So education and technology. Lockheed Martin just recently said that a college degree isn't necessary anymore for them, that they want to be able to apprentice people now Absolutely. because they feel like they're missing out on Absolutely. people that they feel like could work with them and going forward, that's what they're doing. That's right. Uh, I'm just curious how your business now Yes could fit into those models now instead of people not being able to afford college that they may be able to learn 
yes. from something that you have Absolutely. put together. We've got a lot of equipment that's directly applicable to careers, STEAM or STEM. Uh, for example, our metal shop has machines that by you know, professional machine shop standards are on the small and slow side. They're not something you do probably production work on because they're not fast enough and time is money. But the, the way they're programmed, the way you do the designs for them and the code that's produced for them is identical to the big machines, the multi-million dollar machines that do run fast. So if you can master our machines, then you're well on your way to working with the big machines. And there's a lot of machining that goes on in Huntsville for aerospace for both aviation and space. Well, it is interesting how education, I think, is going to start changing just yeah. simply because of the expense of it now. It's getting Absolutely. out of control uh, almost for people. I know that I work with people that, you know, I know someone who has a $100,000 student loan. Yes. And, you know, for them to be able to make that up and have that burden as they go in to start their career and start a family and all that, it makes it very difficult. Yeah. Uh, yeah. to be able to do that. Four years in college, four year colleges and universities are a wonderful thing. You know, they're a, a repository of advanced knowledge. They're they're doing the research and development. They're they're teaching people to be engineers and scientists and mathematicians. But unfortunately, between the academia and the government, they've convinced a lot of people, guidance counselors in high schools and the kids and the teachers that everybody needs to go get a four year degree to be successful in life. And as you just said, no, you don't. And you certainly don't need $100,000 in student loans to do that. And this, this whole idea that everybody needs to go to college has driven a lot of people to college who have no idea why they're there. And they don't have a goal in mind and they haven't researched what careers they can get and how much it's going to make versus how much they're spending on their education. So, you know, you can get certificates that allow you to go to work. You can go to a two-year college like Drake State or Calhoun, Wallace State, and get a, a degree, an associate degree there that fully qualifies you to go to industry work. And in fact, a, a lot of the big companies in Huntsville, if you go to work for them, they will pay for your college or have some kind of tuition assistance program. So if you want a four-year degree, if you decide you want to become an engineer, that's a great way to do it. But in the meantime, you're earning a competitive wage, and you've got a two-year head start on the people who are still in college, <laughs> you know, that, right. that you're earning that. So it's a great way to go, and we're really encouraging that. We're working on setting up programs to work with veterans to help them transition to the civilian world and find those kinds of careers. We're keenly aware that there's a shortage of workers in the skilled trades in Huntsville, like construction, so the plumbers, the electricians, the, the framers, the um, HVAC folks on there. And we're not going to be giving them that training, but we want to uh, be the gateway where they discover those fields and find out that A, they can do it, and B, how they can do it. So guide them along the way. We have a truck that we got with a donation from Toyota Motors that we call our STEAM Career Awareness Truck, where we can take programs out to schools and get them when they're early enough, young enough, that they can start aiming at a STEAM career. That can be, the problem is they're not even aware these careers exist, that these fields are accessible to them. Right. So we're going to get role models and show them through videos and in-person appearances that yes, these are ordinary people just like you, and they went out and got these great jobs that they love. So I, I that's think one that's of our wonderful. Goals. Yeah. I was watching this video with Warren Buffett and he was talking to college students. And one of the questions that came up with is, how do you expect us to make a good living with an abundance of student loan debt? 
And he had this brilliant answer. And I don't think a lot of people see this until it's out there and people say it and then people can learn from it. But he just simply said, he said, if you are not really in a specialized area, you can go to the cheapest accredited college and it means the exact same thing. So, you know, his advice is, is go to a two-year community college and then right. go to a two-year after Absolutely. that college. And he said, it, it'll save you a lot of money and you're going to get the same job that you would have gotten. He's, and he said, that's where we're at today. In my opinion, he's 100% right. And in some states, I think Tennessee's one of them, you can go to community college for free. So your first two years of college is essentially free, except for your living expenses. And if you yeah. live at home, then mom and dad are footing the bill for that. So, Well, and I, I think things are probably going to be changing. You know, I think yeah. we're at the peak of that, if you will, yeah. on education. And so there's going to be all these other ways to get educated in different fields. And yeah. you're one of those helping bring us into that next yeah. new level. Like I said, I'm not anti-four-year college. I think they, they serve a vital role in our community. But they're going to have to change as the world changes, become more affordable and to offer programs that are relevant to more people. I know, and I know they're thinking about this already and working to adapt. Right, and they will have to adapt. That, it's adapt or die. I went, in order to work with one of our clients that does a training program for a field called mechatronics that combines the four areas that are useful to service technicians and maintenance in manufacturing plants. I went to a Siemens course to get certified as an instructor in that. And I met high school teachers who were teaching the same course to high school students. They did it over a couple years. Once they graduated with the certificate in their hand, they were ready to go to work at a, a, a Toyota or a, a Mazda or a Polaris and be a junior maintenance technician and learn how to maintain all the machines in the plant. And they would come in knowing the fundamentals. They didn't have to start from scratch. And the companies were glad to have them because there's a real shortage of them. Mazda Toyota is going to need 400 people like that, uh, along with 4,000 other people, including operators, to, to run the place. So these are valuable skills, and you don't have to even wait till you go to college. You can learn them in high school. And then, of course, the dual enrollment programs, they can take vocational programs there, too, are a great way to get an education without spending a lot of money. Which is, which is wonderful. Okay, so Mike, we have a lot of information that you've been going over. We're going to make this part one of part two of your interview. Okay. We'll uh, do part two here just momentarily, okay? Great. I had a great interview with Mike Murdoch. He has so much information and a lot of value to add for people wanting to start a small business maybe one day even raising to the level of a multi-million dollar company. This was part one of Mike's interview. Next week, please listen to part two of what Mike has to say about owning a small business. Thank you for listening to epitch.org. Thank you for listening today. Please check out my website at epitch.org or anchor.fm slash epitch.org to listen to future podcasts and on my Twitter account, epitch.org, to learn more about entrepreneurship. May these individual stories inspire you to do great things in entrepreneurship. Thank you.